0: My name's Howard, and I'm on the elder board here at First Baptist Church, Medford, Oregon. We're going to be reading from Luke 19, 1 through 10 today. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because... He was small in stature. So we ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So we hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He is gone. In to be a guest of a man who is a sinner? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I, have, I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation is coming to the house, since he was also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's our word. You may be seated.
1: Thanks, Howard. (laughs) Many of you knew Ray Hoadley. Ray Hoadley beat us all to the finish line. And he is home with the Lord. And we will be taking time on Saturday, this coming Saturday, February 11th, here at the FBC Worship Center to remember Ray and praise God for his resurrection. So Ray is joining Jesus this morning, is with Jesus this morning. I didn't write down what time it is, February 11th, 2 p.m. It has just come to me. Somebody has given me the, it's 2 p.m., February 11th, here in the Worship Center. We would look forward to worshiping God with you as you remember his work in Ray's life. We're going to be in Luke 19, verses 1 through 27, part of which Howard read for us this morning. And why don't we just take a moment and pray and ask God to do his work on our hearts by his spirit through his word. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your word where we encounter the risen Savior, Jesus. We pray this morning that you would allow our minds and our hearts to be fully present in this, morning, in this moment, and our hope is your Holy Spirit would do a work in us, that you would make us like Christ, that you would show us those places we need to turn over to you in repentance. We would pray that for those among us here this morning, God, who do not yet have faith in Christ, that this morning your Spirit would draw us in to trust Jesus for forgiveness, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get some important matters out of the way first here as we look at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is not the shortest man in the Bible. Who is the shortest man in the Bible? Peter, because he fell asleep on his watch. I heard another one, Nehemiah. Last one's a little more remote. Is the only, there's probably more. Bildad the shoe height. Bildad the shoe height. For those of us, as high as a shoe. Do I have to explain the joke? I mean, for those of us who are going through Job on Wednesday nights, we're familiar with Bildad the shoe height. Okay, so we've got them all out the way. Those are all the. For those of us who are vertically challenged, we're not making fun. We're talking about Zacchaeus here. So. Luke 19, 1 through 27. Shane Morris wrote an article this week. I read it, and he talks about a modern phenomenon, primarily that's happening uh, among men in our culture. And this phenomenon is a sense of seeking a particular way of expressing manhood. And it, it's really, really interesting to think about as he describes a couple of popular uh, content creators, writers, podcasters, and uh, those who share content on social media. These are uh, retired Navy SEALs and philosophers which have a lot of con- in common. Stoics, we would call them. Some popular ones you may have heard of is a retired Navy SEAL named uh, Jocko Willink. And, uh, I think he's hilarious. He's also massive. Um, and then uh, philosopher Ryan uh, Holiday. And, and there's some overlap between Uh, this retired Navy SEAL and other ex-military that espouse the things he does as well as Stoics. And this overlap we hear from a very popular uh, um, psychiatrist out there, a guy named Jordan Peterson. Some of you have heard of all these names. And these are probably people you listen to. Here's what's interesting. Is these talk about, all of these talk about achieving something in life, uh, uh, attaining to a quality of life that is attainable. Uh, the good life, living a life that's significant and has purpose and has mission, and it is achieved through having virtue, having morals that drive us to make decisions that are positive. And, and what's even more interesting about this is these decisions, this this life of virtue, this life of moral that the morals, this life of, of seeking purpose through intentional decision-making is achieved through doing this in the midst of suffering. So Jocko Willink, the retired Navy SEAL, talks about the importance of getting up between 4 and 4.30 in the morning every single day to get yourself in shape. And here's how he describes it in terms of encountering suffering. And it's when, I, when, he, when he says it, it, I think it relates with everybody. He says this, nobody's alarm goes off at 4 o'clock in the morning who wants to get up, none. Nobody wants to get up. Everybody has that same sensation of that warm, soft pillow. and I just lost half the room; just went to sleep. <laughs> everybody, when you wait, when the alarm goes up, everybody says, "I do not want to get out of bed." Everybody says that, 100%. Some people do anyway. See, and that's that. That stoicism it says it doesn't matter if it hurts. It doesn't matter if I don't look, don't like it. I'm going to do it in suffering so this quality of life is forged in and through suffering. This self-improvement, physical fitness, um, the hustle culture, this has all become very popular ways in which especially men are expressing masculinity. Why is all of this very, very interesting? Because we're talking about transformation. And a lot of it resonates with a sense of what does the Bible teach us. The Bible teaches us to live life of virtue and morals, recognizing that we're going to do it in and uh, within uh, suffering. But what we're going to discover today is the motivations are very different. Between those who are seeking self-improvement and those who are seeking to be transformed by Jesus, the motivation is extremely different. One says, I can become something by doing something. The other has a personal encounter with the Savior, and it transforms how they, how they live their life. And that's what we're going to see in Zacchaeus, and that's what we're going to see in the parable that follows Zacchaeus, is what does it mean to have a life that is transformed? Not a life where we achieve significance and importance, a, a life of mattering through our own merit, through our own discipline, through our own hustle. It's instead a life of significance and importance and mattering because we had a personal encounter with Jesus, a transformed life. Number one, through an encounter with Jesus, let's look at this occasion with Zacchaeus. Jesus was going through Jericho, and as you remember from a few weeks ago, this is where Jesus healed a blind man, and he is uh, moving along with a large crowd. There's a large crowd with him, And Zacchaeus was a chief uh, tax collector. He was likely Jewish, and he was important. He was wealthy. As you well know, tax collectors were looked down on among the Jews in that place because, number one, they were loyal to Rome. Number two, they generally didn't have uh, very high morals, so they would often overcharge people for their taxes, and they would enrich themselves through uh, being deceitful in their business dealings. And so Zacchaeus wasn't only a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector, which means he was either the boss of many tax collectors, or among the tax collectors in his region, he was the top salesman. Tax collector of the year was on the sign out in front of their local booth. So you can imagine how people might view Zacchaeus. He was not only a tax collector, he was really, really good at tax collector. He was the Bernie Madoff of tax collectors, but I think that's redundant. And, and, and he was, uh, wanted to see Jesus. Jesus was making his way through town, and there was a great crowd following him. Of course, Jesus had a, a reputation. Many people wanted to see Jesus, including Herod and others. Jesus uh, couldn't be hired out to do birthday parties. He was on mission for the Father, and Zacchaeus, either out of curiosity or personal conviction, it doesn't say, he wanted to uh, see Jesus, but there was a problem, and that's the problem was his eyes were too close to the ground. I'm trying to be I'm trying to be nice. The Bible taught, describes him as small in stature, but he was a problem solver, a go-getter, a do-get-it-done, figure out what needs to be done kind of guy. So he figured out a way in which he could get himself in a place where he could observe Jesus as he's walking by. So Zacchaeus has defined the relationship he wants to have with Jesus. He wants to see the show. He wants to see the weird stuff that's going maybe a maybe a guy with abnormal swelling is going to be healed. That would be fun to watch. Maybe a guy who can't walk is going to be made to walk. Maybe another blind guy will be healed. Maybe Jesus will start handing out lunches again. And so he figures out where he anticipates this uh, crowd is going to go, and he is able to figure out sort of where it's going to go. And so he makes his way to a tree, and he, and he climbs the tree so that he can get a better vantage point of Jesus. So Zacchaeus, this sinner, Zacchaeus, this wealthy sinner, Zacchaeus, this wealthy sinner reject in his culture, is trying to see Jesus the sideshow. We might be reminded of another encounter Jesus had with a wealthy person. This came uh, a few weeks ago in our time in the book of Luke. He was a wealthy young ruler, and he came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus gave him a handful of the Ten Commandments, and the wealthy young ruler said, oh, I've done all of those. And Jesus doesn't question him. He says, instead, uh, give away all of your money to the poor and follow me. Jesus there is seeking to create a situation where this wealthy young ruler would have to confront the fact that he doesn't want God. He wants his stuff with a little bit of God on the side. And Jesus tells his disciples after that, if you remember this, how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle then for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples responded uh, something like, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said this. Do you remember what he said? With God, there's nothing that's impossible. God, God could do anything. So what we're about to see is the impossible. What we're about to see is the impossible. So Zacchaeus is up in the tree. He wants to get a good view. And as this crowd is walking by, Jesus came to the place. See, Zacchaeus thought he was smart enough to figure out where Jesus was going. That's not what was happening. Zacchaeus was the target, not Jesus. Zacchaeus didn't figure out where Jesus was going. Jesus was trying to figure out where Zacchaeus going. Because Zacchaeus got him up and got up in the tree, and now Jesus said, "No, now I've got him cornered." And he walks over to him. When Jesus came to the place, I, I just wish we could have seen the expression on Jesus' face. I don't know what Jesus would have done. Zacchaeus is scurrying away up behind the crowd. Nobody can see him for obvious reasons. I don't want to, again, makes his way up to the tree. And, 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 and Jesus, kind of out the corner of his eye, sees him up the tree. He goes, oh, fish on. <laughs> this guy, Zacchaeus thinks he's in charge of this. He's not. He has landed precisely where Jesus means for him to be. And so Jesus comes over to Zacchaeus, and Jesus says to Zacchaeus, if you will clean up your act, if you'll make yourself right, if you'll show me you've got good potential, if you'll swear away all of the sins you've been doing, then maybe I'll consider letting you into my kingdom. Now, as you can tell, I've changed the Bible there, and you're apparently cursed for that, so let's correct that quickly. What does Jesus say? I'm going to eat with you. Let's Let's have lunch. In fact, let's not just have lunch. I'm coming to your home. And here's what Jesus wants Zacchaeus to know and everybody who's standing around him. I'm going to eat at that guy's house. And in that culture, to eat with a guy approves the guy. To eat with a guy in his home says not only do you approve of him, you're into him. You want to be pals. You've got something in common. You have connection that you you value. So, So Jesus is communicating to the crowd, this outsider, this sinner, this reject, I'm with him. All of you folks who are following me, he's saying, oh, you thought you were with me. Well, you can be, but that means you've got to be with him. Zacchaeus, I am going to have lunch with you, and I'm going to do that in your, in your home. And This is scandalous. This is, this is scandalous. This is Jesus approving of the lifestyle of an individual. That's how that culture would have taken it. Was Jesus doing that on purpose? Absolutely. He wanted everyone to know what the score was. Number one, Zacchaeus doesn't seek Jesus. Jesus seeks Zacchaeus. Number two, Zacchaeus doesn't need to make himself clean for Jesus to seek him out. Jesus seeks him out as he is and says, I am coming with you to dinner. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully so something now has changed in his relationship with Jesus see up to this point Jesus for Zacchaeus was a sideshow he just wanted to see the parade as it went by but now something has changed because Zacchaeus who was an outsider is now suddenly in the inner circle he's with the guy the crowd is following and not only is he with the guy he didn't pursue him that the guy pursued him so it came down and he received him joyfully. That's verse 6 of Luke 19. What that means is they went to his home. He greeted him on the ground. And then they went to his home and the, and the meal commenced. Verse 7, when they saw it. Who's the they? The crowd all around him. We don't know who all in the crowd were the they, but it might have included some of the disciples, as you know. And as we all know from reading the scripture, it took a while for the disciples to figure out What Jesus was up to. When they saw it, they grumbled. They were annoyed. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You must not miss the impact of what is being said. The association of Jesus with Zacchaeus for that culture communicated that Jesus was a sinner. That's what was communicated. That they, there was no other way to take it. They wouldn't be saying this if he was just being a little bit socially out of bounds. Theologically, they assumed something was wrong with Jesus here. How could you possibly have a meal and be the guest of a man who was a sinner? It reminds us, of course, of that verse. Jesus is not a sinner. He never sinned. He perfectly holy from beginning to end. He is God. But he who knew no sin became sin, that we might have the righteousness of God in him. Sometime during this encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus put his faith in Christ for salvation. At some point during this encounter, Zacchaeus did what all ought to do, which is trust that Jesus offers salvation and forgiveness to any who receive it. It happened sometime, between the climbing of a tree and the end of verse 7. It happened sometime in there. My guess would be it would be sometime during that meal that the conversation was happening. What happens is his life becomes fundamentally transformed. A miracle happens because Jesus pursued Zacchaeus. A rich man gets saved. Something that is impossible, according to Jesus, unless God does the impossible. A camel, here in Luke 19, walked through the eye of an needle, And a wealthy Jewish tax collector said, I need forgiveness. Look at what he did as a result of his transformed life. Zacchaeus stood. How we knew he stood, we don't know. People are shaking their heads. And some of you say, I thought we did this at the beginning. No, it's going to keep going. Every time they come to me, they're going to come out. No filter today. Zacchaeus stood, and he said this to the Lord. Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it Fourfold. I don't know how much of his money would be left, but it wouldn't be a lot. Because for most tax collectors, a significant percentage of their income was fraud. And he's just agreed to pay back fourfold, which exceeds the requirements of the law, fourfold any who had been defrauded. 20% is required. He now offers 25% return. So he's going to give away half his income. And some of us are saying, well, why is he only giving away half his income? He told the rich young ruler to give it all away. Well, I think the math here is pretty simple. He's keeping half of it so he can restore and make restitution to those he's frauded. Likely, when he is done giving away his money and making restitution for those he has defrauded, all he's going to have left is Jesus. And he didn't earn relationship with Jesus because he restored the the fraud in his life, and he didn't earn relationship with Jesus because he was generous and gave half his income away. Because he had relationship with Jesus, he had a completely different view of treasure, of his life. Now that he had Jesus, the other stuff as a priority was reduced. And Jesus said, today, salvation has come to this house. The crowd who was offended that Jesus went into this house, Jesus makes sure they know salvation occurred in the house you would have kept me out of. Notice it didn't say salvation came among the crowd. Where did the salvation occur? Where a, a sinner had a personal encounter with Jesus, and that personal encounter with Jesus transformed his life. The crowd grumbled, Zacchaeus should not have had this kind of access to Jesus. Jesus should not have had this kind of association. And the crowd at some point is going to have to decide. And every individual has to decide, do you want the kingdom of Christ or do you want your kingdom? And the crowd at this point is going to say they want their kingdom. Zacchaeus is saying, I don't need my kingdom anymore. I'll take the kingdom of heaven. When we get to the parable here in just a moment, We'll see exactly how that that lines out. Jesus wants everybody to know, and Zacchaeus is an example of what his mission is about. Look at verses 9 and 10. Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus' mission was on target, and he was driven by it, Seek and save the lost. Was Zacchaeus lost? Yes, and he knew it. And when he had an encounter with Jesus that was initiated by Jesus, he received Christ by faith and his life was transformed. Was the crowd lost? Yes, but they didn't know it. And when Jesus says his mission is to seek and save the lost, it has two kinds of meanings. Number one, the the lost, those who are sinners, which is how many people? All the people. However, it has a second meaning to it. It's also those who recognize they're lost. And many people in Jesus' day did not see themselves as lost. The Pharisees didn't see themselves as lost. Many Jews didn't see themselves as lost. They assumed, if I came through the lineage of Abraham, I have no need for salvation because I'm a son of Abraham. So I don't need Jesus to save me. I already am. The Son of Man came to seek those who are lost and those who, by the power of the Spirit, recognize it. And so Zacchaeus being lost and knowing he is lost, Jesus says, I'm here for you. You're my people. Outsiders become insiders. Most Jews would have preferred a Gentile get saved than a Jewish tax collector like Zacchaeus. And Jesus wants everybody to know, this is the kind of people I came to save. Zacchaeus then puts his faith in action. He loves the king, he loves the kingdom, and so he begins to conform his life to the kingdom of Christ by faith. He expresses his worship to Christ through costly generosity and restitution. Jesus reaches out to save Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus responds in worship, and the result is a transformed life. This is very different than a self-improvement stoicism where I'm going to be awesome by being self-disciplined. This is a relational connection with the king that says, I love you more than my own life, and I'm going to express that through worship. Transformation occurs when we have a personal encounter with Jesus. Here's the problem I think that we have sometimes Um, and I know nobody here, it'd be the people who couldn't make it today or go to different churches, right? Sinners are annoying. Have you noticed this? I know we're not supposed to say that out loud, but that's my job. Say things out loud that you refuse to. There's nothing more difficult in life than dealing with people who sin. There are people in your home that sin, there are people at work that sin, there are people in church that sin. Have you noticed? And as one author said, there's, in fact, nothing more annoying than people who sin differently than you. If they would sin the same way we do, we'd be okay. In fact, we'd get t-shirts made. But the problem is they sin in ways that we think are silly. They don't sin in the dignified, noble ways that we sin. And so here's the problem. If sinners make you squeamish, Jesus will make you squeamish because he's into them. This is a problem all throughout the New Testament. So this is not a new problem. Jesus saves sinners, but when you get saved, if you haven't noticed, you don't immediately go to heaven. You you stay. And when you get saved, you don't immediately become perfect. Have you noticed? So Jesus saves sinners, and then we get to spend our lives becoming more like Christ through transformation. The The fancy word for that is sanctification. And that becoming like Jesus takes time. In fact, it will take just about your whole life. And so you have people who are in Christ who are still struggling with flesh and sin, and you have to live with them. There's a guy in the New Testament. His name was Philemon. He had somebody that worked for him. He was a slave, and the slave abandoned him. And the slave, Onesimus, whose name means worthless, that's nice, had the gall to meet the Apostle Paul and get saved. So Philemon has a slave who has abandoned him, and Philemon in Roman culture would have certain rights regarding uh, Onesimus, and they wouldn't be pleasant. And Paul writes to him, your slave is saved. I'm sort of guessing you're going to treat this guy different now. And Philemon is going, we don't know what he said. We assume he responded favorably. So now you have two sinners trying to figure out what it means to relate to one another in a broken world. You have uh, the entire book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. People, they were a church. I, have you read 1 and 2 Corinthians? It's hard to believe this place was even a church. I mean, these people were terrible. At communion, they got drunk. That's, we read 1 Corinthians 11. You should go back and read 1 Corinthians 10. The whole reason we read 1 Corinthians 11 is he's trying to correct the fact that they would show up for their love feast and the rich people would get drunk. And of course, the fix for that, this is how bad it was. Paul didn't tell him to stop drinking. What did he tell him to do? Drink at home. That's how bad it is. Stop sleeping with one another. And so this is what it looks like for broken people in Christ seeking transformation. And it's, and it's hard People are selfish, people are broken, people are angry and resentful and bitter and and greedy and selfish. Did I repeat anything? So if those kinds of people make you squeamish, if you need other people to fix their sin issues before they can be close with you, you need to recognize they're already close with Jesus. Jesus is into them. He invites them over. They don't need to impress you with their awesomeness because Jesus already sought them out. And if sinners make us squeamish, then Jesus will make us squeamish too. And one of the fundamental realities of living in unity as a body of Christ is learning we're not home yet. And we need to receive one another with the same kind of intentionality and love That Christ does. This does not say that sin is okay. This is not accepting and saying you can do whatever you want. Of course, we're talking about transformation, but we're not home yet. And Jesus wants everyone to know Zacchaeus was an outsider and now is an insider because of Jesus' intentional act. And in the body of Christ, we need to be defined by that kind of unity. The kind of unity where we seek one another out because we already have closeness with Christ. A transformed life, number one, it occurs through a personal encounter with Jesus. We don't earn an encounter with Jesus, but because we have had an encounter with Jesus, we want our life to be transformed. Now, let's move on to the parable beginning in verse 11, and this parable is intended to contrast what is happening now during this time of transformation, during this time where we're not home yet, and what we anticipate to be coming sometime in the future. Let me read it. I'm going to read verses 11 uh, through the end of the section here. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. He was near Jerusalem, and they supposed the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. They had just read Left Behind, and they assumed it was. <laughs> Jesus said, Therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. "'Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, "'Engage in business until I come.' "'But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, "'We do not want this man to reign over us.' "'When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants, "'to whom he had given the money to be called to him, "'that he might know what they had gained by doing business. "'The first came before him and said, "'Lord, your mina has made ten minas more.' And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has earned five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10. I tell you, That to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The kingdom is not yet what it will be. Faithful servants live today based on the kingdom, what will be in the kingdom. Faithful servants live today based on what the kingdom will be someday. The unfaithful reject the kingdom. Jesus here with this parable wants to confront the crowd and our own hearts and say, Your life ought to be defined by loyalty to the the king who has saved you by his own grace and mercy. This king has come and has sought sinners and provided forgiveness through his sacrifice and resurrection. His anticipation is that having been redeemed by him, our life will be defined as loyal to him. His kingdom is yet to come in all of its fullness and he wants us to live today anticipating what it will be someday in the future. He wants us today to live for the king as though... He was a king worth living for because he is. The disciples, as as we mentioned here, beginning of verse 11, his disciples assumed the kingdom was coming right now. They were going to make their way to Jerusalem. He was going to kick out the high priest and kick out Rome, and all of a sudden he was going to sit on his throne, and, yea, the kingdom is coming. And that's not about to happen. He's going to Jerusalem in order to be murdered by Rome and to give up his life as sacrifice. So, since the kingdom isn't coming immediately, have you noticed the kingdom hasn't come yet? Maybe I should let you know. The kingdom hasn't come yet. (laughs) If you think the kingdom has come, you are too easily impressed. What are we supposed to do since the kingdom hasn't come? Well, some of us get out a lawn chair, sit on our porch facing the eastern sky with a glass of lemonade, and I'm being nice there, and say, well, I'm going to sit here and wait for Jesus to show up. That's not what Jesus says to do here. What does it mean? Since, Since we anticipate the fullness of the kingdom and we want our hearts devoted to a king who sought us sinners out, what do we do? We live faithful to the king today in light of what the kingdom will be in the future. And what he says about these disciples, using three of the ten servants as examples, Jesus expects that all who are his disciples will be effective and fruitful for the king. You might have missed it. Maybe you misheard what I said. What I didn't say. Some disciples of Christ will be effective and fruitful for the king. That's not what I said. All disciples of Christ will be effective and fruitful for the king. And guess what? There is real, significant, and eternal reward for that fruitfulness. You have two different servants. Each had a different return for their business opportunities. One had a return of uh, a huge amount. Took one mina and turned it into ten. I'm not a business person, but that seems like a good return. Does that seem pretty good? Is that like a thousand percent return? I'm not a math magician, but... Stayed at a Holiday Inn last night, so. The other guy took one and turned it into five. I'm going to go with 400% return on that. It's pretty good. The other guy put it in a hanky, and we're hoping it's a clean hanky. And and what Jesus is saying, these other two understood how great the kingdom was. They weren't even motivated by the return because they knew 100% of the return was the king's. So no matter how much they invested today, all of the fruit of their investment, 100% of it belongs to who? The king. Their thinking was this. It doesn't matter how fruitful I am, the king can have it because I know what the kingdom is going to be like. When that kingdom comes, these 10 minas will seem lame. I'll take the kingdom. That's what the first two servants illustrate. Their effectiveness and fruitfulness for the kingdom was not for the immediacy of fruitfulness, it was for the anticipation of relationship with the king and the the beauty and power and wealth of that kingdom. That motivation of the future kingdom was real and significant. It wasn't fantasy land, someday we're gonna go, you know, it'll be great. No, this is a real motivation for them. There will be significant reward. So notice what, the, what they got. What did the guy get for having the 10 minas? 10 cities. Can you buy a city for a mina? No. So was his personal return much better than just getting the minas? Yes. But the question is not what was he getting. The question is when. When was the reward? When the kingdom comes into its fullness. And it hasn't come yet. And what Jesus is saying, you are transformed by a personal encounter with Christ... Having been transformed, you want your life to fundamentally have a different aim. Fruitfulness for the kingdom. Not to benefit next week. Not to benefit next year. Not to benefit next decade. When's the benefit? Eternity. Who can you ask about it? Ray Hoadley. He's doing it. He's there. He made it. All the way to the finish line. We're not home yet, though. And so we're seeking profitability for the kingdom. That's what a personal encounter with Christ says. It says, I, I can make 100 bucks here or I can make 100 bucks in eternity, which is better? And the, the first two servants were, were smart enough to figure out that kingdom's better than this one. I'll take that one all day long. The third one had no fear of the Lord. He had no fear of the Lord. He acted like he did. Oh, I was so afraid of you because you're so harsh and you take profit where you don't have profit. Number one. The king doesn't take profit from what isn't his. Why? Because everything's his. This guy has no fear of the Lord. If he was actually motivated by fear of the Lord, that's what Jesus says, he would have at least bought a CD. I mean, he could at least put it into a savings. Do savings account pay anything yet? No, the Fed's raising rates, but the banks aren't. They'll catch up. (laughs) So you could at least put it on deposit and got a little bit of interest. I mean, at least come back and say, hey, I made a half a percent this year on this mina. And the king isn't even going compl- uh, boy, you didn't even beat inflation. Okay, that's fine. It, but the guy didn't do that because he was in rebellion. Compare this with Zacchaeus. What did Zacchaeus do? As soon as he had an encounter with the king, as soon as his eyes were open to the kingdom, he said, wait a minute. I can take my ill-gotten gains... He can take money that he had earned through fraud and convert that into fruitfulness for the kingdom of God. What a great deal is that? Is that a good deal or what? Well, it's not a good deal if you want to buy a new phone. It's not a good deal if you have plans for the money that you have. But if a person's heart has suddenly been fundamentally re-altered to say, wait, there's nothing here worth having, there's a kingdom coming where it's worth having, Zacchaeus he was a businessman. He understood, wait a minute, I've been afforded an opportunity like no other. I can be fruitful for the kingdom of God here, whereas this evil servant didn't understand it. The reward that we understand in the kingdom of God is real, it's substantial, and it's eternal. This other one was in rebellion. Let me look a couple of other places um, Look at Luke 12, 32. It might be up on the screen. It might not. I don't know. We'll see. Here's what Jesus said in Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What does God give you? The whole thing. Congratulations. You own a kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches. Where your treasure will be, there your heart will be also. In Christ, you have been given the kingdom of God. This isn't a pretend kingdom. The kingdom today is the pretend one. This is the one that doesn't last. The one that's coming is the one that lasts forever. And Jesus says, when you have had a personal encounter with me, by faith, that's your kingdom. And now our our minds become reoriented towards goals of that kingdom and having substantial, real, and eternal rewards there. Luke chapter 22 beginning in verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Here's some more stuff about the rewards of heaven. Number one, there will be eating and drinking. Amen? Let's just marinate in that a little bit. You won't get, you know, you want, there's no such thing as unhealthy calories in heaven. All the calories are good calories. You will sit at Christ's table, you will be behind the velvet ropes, the most exclusive of places. Finally, there will be authority, there will be discernment there will be decisions that need to be made. I don't know what decisions need to be made in the kingdom of heaven, but they need to be made. And who's going to make them? You are. If you want heaven sitting on clouds, playing a harp, for you, I hope there's lots of that. For me, this is my kind of kingdom. There is work to be done. There is initiative to be taken. When Jesus set up this world in Genesis, what did he tell to humankind? Have dominion. Get to work. Take my creation and add to it. Orchard it. Order it. Impress your own impression on it, having been made in the kingdom of God. When we are in that kingdom, there will be things to engage our creative faculties, our leadership and our initiative, and those things which fuel us. And finally, we can do those things which drive our heart. You know what those things are in your life. And they will no longer be taken down by toil, We will no longer give our best efforts and our best passion to things that fail. That's toil. Finally, we will make decisions and engage with our creative minds and our our leadership abilities, and things will go as intended. And there will be places in which we make discernments and judgments. We're not done there. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. When one of you has a grievance against another, why would somebody have a grievance against another? Because we ain't home yet. Does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of saints? So he's saying to the church in Corinth, why are you suing one another? Once you figure out yourselves? And everybody in the church is saying, well, we're not qualified for that. We're not qualified to figure out who is right and wrong. And here's what he says. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, Are you incompetent to try the trivial cases of issues in church? So you're going to be judging the world if you're in the kingdom of God. At some point, you will stand and you will look with Christ's eyes and with his spirit and assess the realities of the world around us. And he says, you can't figure out who owes what when it comes to a contract that's been broken? What's your problem? It gets more. Do you not know that you're to judge the angels I'm not convinced we have a personal guardian angel, but just for the sake of argument, let's pretend you do. And if you love the idea of a guardian angel, then you can get all excited about this. Here we go. You can imagine it this way. Someday we're going to get to heaven. That's what it says here. And we're going to sit down, and you're going to sit by Bill, your angel. You're going to get out the form. Well, Bill, let's see how you did. I backed into that car in the parking lot. Where were you on that one? I mean, seriously. Seriously. Man, the camera was there. Everything was there. And, and where were you? I mean, anything. You could have given me a spasm to hit the brake, but no, I had a spasm. I hit the gas. <laughs> going to have to give you a little downgrade on that one, Bill. You know, so we're going to judge the angels because the angels are ministering spirits sent by Christ to aid those who are his. And by God's grace, it's going to be to his glory that we see the work of the angels and we will assess them and we will be grateful for God sending them to our aid. But the question is, can we not make discernment in this life if we're going to judge angels? And the second thing is, do you not understand what is coming someday? There is not a judge who has ever lived in this world that is as exalted as someone who would assess the quality of an angel's performance. And the Bible is saying that someday you will do that. And why are we so hitched to this kingdom? That's what Jesus is getting at. A transformed life occurs because we have a personal encounter with the Savior, and a transformed life occurs when we finally recognize we have a better kingdom coming. It's coming. I don't know when, but we're closer than we've ever been. And that kingdom is worth pursuing, tangible. Eternal rewards, important responsibilities, roles, and jobs. Close, meaningful, and significant relationship with one another and Christ our King. But the crowd rejected the King. Look back at the end of the parable and we'll end with this one. Luke chapter 19, verse 27. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them in front of me. That's kind of gross. Let's talk about the book of Revelation for a minute. Well, this will only take an hour. The book of Revelation is man, it's one of the easiest books to understand in the Bible. No, I'm not kidding. I mean, figuring out why a dragon is trying to eat a baby, that's hard. But overall, what is the book telling us? It's not complicated. First chapter, what happens? Encounter with the king. What we're talking about here. Jesus, uh, John sees the king. Makes him cry a little bit. He's overwhelmed by it. Encounter with the king. Chapter one. Chapter two and three what happens? Seven letters telling people who aren't home yet what happens when you have an encounter with the king. You stop sinning sexually. You start being generous. Laodicea, you're wealthy. No, you're not. You're poor and naked. So, Chapters 2 and 3, what does it look like for a Christian to live in a broken world who's not home yet, but who has had an encounter with the king? Chapter 2 and 3, that's it. Chapters 4 and 5, the lamb is God. The lamb, looking like he has been slaughtered, sits on the throne. Jesus, having died on the cross and being raised, he is God. He's not God Jr. He is God, the creator and sustainer. Therefore... If you reject the lamb, what happens? Read the rest of the book. It gets ugly. There's big old hailstones. There's horses with tails with snakes that bite you. It, it, it gets real ugly. What, what does that mean? Read verse 27, what does it say? For those enemies of mine who didn't want, want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. You reject the lamb, you experience judgment. That's the middle part of the book. Then we get to chapter 19. And finally, you and I get to sit down at the wedding supper of the lamb. And finally, the kingdom we've always yearned for shows up. There's revelation. See, you thought it was hard. It's not. Have an encounter with the king. Live in a broken world for the king. Don't reject the king or someday it's going to get real bad for you. And then someday, I don't know when, but closer than we've ever been, you and I who are living for the king today, effective in our fruitfulness for him, will finally have the kingdom we've always yearned for. So therefore, having had an encounter with the king, and since we have a kingdom that's worth hoping for, what should happen today? Our lives should be transformed, fundamentally changed. Monday should never be the same again. Because we have a better kingdom than whatever you thought Monday was supposed to be for. A couple of things, then we'll close. I think I've said that already, so that was a lie. So, you get to deal with living with a sinner, sorry. First, couple of, first thing, Jesus really isn't interested in being your novelty act, your icon, your symbol your long distance lover. Jesus has no interest of being your um, icon for all things you think ought to be, political, social, whatever things that you need Jesus to prop up. Jesus has no interest of being your bully club to make the people in your home or community act the way you want. Jesus wants a personal, close, intimate encounter and relationship with you so that you as a sinner see him as the king and trust him to forgive you. That's what Jesus wants. Jesus wants you as a sinner to have a close and personal encounter with him and by faith to have your heart forever changed. That's what he wants. Okay, uh, next thing. To trust Jesus means we trust that the life we live for him is a life of gain, which means that we recognize a life not lived for him is a life not of gain. To know Jesus more is to have our life increasingly fueled by his glory and worship. Put it this way, uh, if you drink seawater when you're thirsty, you will die. At some point, we have to realize seeking fulfillment in anything this world has to offer is drinking seawater. It doesn't offer what it's selling. It only provides short-term satisfaction, but at the end, it leaves us wanting more. The only water that satisfies comes from Jesus. Trusting Jesus means we fundamentally see our life in the world differently, and we stop drinking the seawater this world has to uh, offer. But finally, this: there is nothing in this world more difficult and more rewarding than following Jesus. There is nothing... In this world, more difficult than following Jesus. There's nothing more difficult or rewarding than following Jesus. And We need to get out of this, since things worked out, God must be into it thing. So think of it this way. A guy got called up and he got drafted by the military to go serve in World War I. That's fun. Uh, and he's really excited because God is working because they gave him a free airplane ticket. They gave him free clothes. They gave him a free weapon. They also gave him free food. When he got there, they gave him free housing. Then the commanding officer told him while he was standing in a trench, hey, do you know what? You should go out of the trench and go out there and see what's going on. And the Lord provided a free ladder. So he climbed up that ladder, and what happened? Then the bullets start flying. And they he climbs down like, Lord, I don't know what happened. You provided an airplane ticket. You probably provided clothes and housing and a gun. And you even provided a letter. I had no idea following you would be a battle. Because in Ephesians 6, it says, put on the robe of righteousness, not the breastplate of righteousness, if I remember right. Is that how it goes? Put on the slippers of, that are shod with the gospel. No, we, it, we, we fail to understand sometimes as Christians, God works in our life, and we say, you know what? Dagnabbit, I'm going to follow Jesus. And then the bullets start flying and we get surprised. We're not home yet. To encounter a Christ is to have a life that's transformed, which means you're finally, for the first time maybe, in the fight. There is nothing more difficult in this world than following Jesus. There is also nothing more rewarding in this world than following Jesus. My prayer for each one of us here today is our life would be fundamentally transformed. Whether you've been a Christian forever or just a few days, that in this moment we would have an encounter with Christ and say, you know what? I've got to live my life different. This kingdom doesn't have anything to sell. I want a kingdom that's better. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he sought us out, that we cannot claim that we sought him out. We thank you, God, that we come to you for a lot of different reasons. But here in your word, you remind us again that you want to transform our lives through a personal encounter with Christ. And you want to transform our lives as we recognize we have a better kingdom than this one. Father, I pray for those of us who are here today who who know you as Savior, but recognize as we look at the priorities of our life that we've been living for the wrong kingdom. God would you accept and receive our repentance. And God would you by your spirit open our eyes to see what does it look like for me in the specific situation I'm in to live a life of fruitfulness and effectiveness for the kingdom of God? What are those things I need to stop doing? What are those things I need to start doing? What are the priorities that need to change? What are the relationships that I need to think about? But more than that, God, even in this moment, I know there are many here who don't know you. They have never taken the time to put their faith in you. And I pray in this moment that they would have an encounter with the king, that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of their heart, that they would recognize they need someone to forgive them for their sin. Their shame and their guilt can be in the past, not the future. So I pray, God, that you would move in their hearts to trust Jesus for forgiveness even now. That you would call them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And for the first time in their life, they would experience hope of life eternal. We thank you, Lord, that you are coming again, and that's a promise you intend to keep. Until that day, Lord, make us strong and faithful for you, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen you stand up as we close with a song.